Hey, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. It's Brandon Laws, your host. In today's conversation, such a great one. It's with Siobhan McHale. She's the author of The Insider's Guide to Culture Change, Creating a Workplace that Delivers, Grows, and Adapts. As you know by now, if you're a regular listener, I love talking about culture. I think it's the lifeblood of organizations and the people within it uh, really can make a change for better or for worse. And Siobhan and I get a chance to talk about how uh, we start really by talking about how bad cultures can actually corrupt good people. And we provide plenty of examples of that. And there is uh, a lot that Siobhan talks about in the book and in the podcast about reframing roles to make sure that we navigate culture change for the better and how we go about that. We dive into tons of examples of this and and then we get into like the details of like how do you actually change the culture? How do you bring the desired culture that you want to life? It's not easy. It takes a lot of time and uh, at least with this interview, you're going to get a lot of good tips for how to start making those changes and how you and your people can play a big role in that. So enjoy the episode. I hope you enjoy it. I love this this conversation I have with Siobhan. It's, the book's great, and she was excellent on the podcast. So hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you thought. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my email is also in the show notes, so feel free to email me. Would love to hear what you think. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, Siobhan, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's great to be here with you today, Brandon. You have a new book out. It's called The Insider's Guide to Culture Change, Creating a Workplace that Delivers, Grows, and Adapts. I love talking about culture, and I'm glad to have you on. Why are you an expert in culture? Talk about your background and what led you to write this book and where you're kind of going from here. Well, I studied organizational psychology. And then rather than going into clinical psychology, which most of the students in my university class were going into, I decided I wanted to go into workplaces and really help people to thrive in that environment. And I spent the first decade of my career as a consultant, flying across four continents in and out of workplaces, helping leaders to create workplace cultures. And then after a decade of consulting, I sort of hit a U-turn, Brandon, in my career and decided I wanted more skin in the game. I wanted to roll my sleeves up and actually do a workplace culture change. So I joined a series of multinational organizations as the executive in charge of culture change. And that's where I've spent the past 20 years as an... Oh my gosh. Yeah, actually making culture change happen. And that's how I've come to write this book. So you've basically seen organizations probably at their worst cultures, and then you basically built upon that to get them to 
transform, would you say? Yeah, exactly. That's one of the examples that I talk about in my book is a seven-year transformation of ANZ Bank based in Australia, which was the worst performing bank in the country. And over the course of seven years, we transformed it into one of the highest performing and best regarded banks in the world and actually the number one on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. Do you ever feel like these organizations that you're working with, did they ever realize that they have a bad culture or that it was not quite what they wanted it? Or did they really need you to come in and kind of diagnose it up front? Yeah, I think many managers, they haven't been taught about workplace culture. So they're experiencing noise. They're experiencing a workplace that's not delivering. It's not reaching its potential. There's noise. It's not adapting quickly enough. And they try to put in technical solutions. So they put in training courses or new systems or new processes and procedures, but the underlying culture remains the same and they don't necessarily see or remedy that underlying culture. And that's really my work, helping them to discover that and helping them to put plans and processes and interventions in place, essentially, that will change the culture. I want to dive into the book and I want to start with this. I think with a lot of people who are probably listening, they're like, Oh, you know, I understand the value of a good culture, but they maybe don't realize the consequences of a really bad culture. And you started the book by, I think it was in the introduction, you you basically wrote that a bad culture can corrupt good people. And you made the point that even Enron had integrity as one of their company's values. So what happened in that situation where they maybe had values or at least on the surface, they thought they had values? Or alignment around those. And then the culture went terrible. And then people were corrupted and people just went along with it. Like, why? Yeah, we saw the collapse of Enron, which was a US energy company. And a culture of greed had emerged in that company. And actually, it became one of the largest bankruptcies in the US and triggered the dissolution of Arthur Anderson, one of the top accounting firms in the world. And in the trial, the CEO of Enron, Jeff Skilling, he was maintaining his innocence, but there were a whole swag of illegal and underhand schemes that were uncovered in the trial where Enron had actually been manipulating the energy supply and triggering an electrical crisis in California. They were even taking power plants offline and triggering black oh, to gosh. sort of manipulate the energy prices. And what emerged was that there was a 64-page code of ethics, an Enron code of ethics, which was 64 pages long, including the value of integrity, even though doing all of this illegal and underhand presses in the company. So one of the lessons from that for leaders is that we've been taught, many of us, that you know, in order to change culture, you produce a values and behaviors booklet. You make the values clear. And I've seen many leaders spend months workshopping values and writing the values and producing beautiful documents about values, company values, and then rolling them out. And nothing much changes. And this is why I wrote my four steps to change workplace culture, because I was seeing this over and over again. A bad culture can corrupt good people. And culture is more than just employee engagement. That's the other big myth, I think, Brandon, that leaders have been taught, that you just roll out new values. And the second thought is that it's all about employee engagement. Yeah, I think what's fascinating, we're just about the whole the idea of this code of ethics and the value statements is like that by itself is obviously not good enough. 
I think you have to be intentional about the culture. And that's why I do like your the culture disruptor model is what you call it. And it actually puts it into simple terms of like how you can intentionally go about creating the culture that you desire. Can you talk about those four steps? And maybe just a little tidbit about each of those and then we could dive into all of it. Yeah, I'll talk to you just at a high level. The steps are diagnose the patterns, reframe the roles, break the patterns and consolidate your gains. And if I use the ANZ bank example, when I walked into the bank in the early 2000s, I very quickly picked up that there was a pattern that was running the whole organization, which was dysfunctional. When I walked into head office, I noticed that head office was in role of order giver. So the people in head office were giving the instructions and the directions to the branches. There were 700 branches within the company and the employees in the branches had taken up the role of the order takers. And they were just taking instructions and doing what they were told. And there was a pattern or an agreement between head office and the branches, which was that they were blaming each other. You're to blame. No, you're to blame. You're to blame customer service. Now you're to blame. And this cycle of blame was going around and round and nothing was changing. So the bank had the worst customer satisfaction rates of any big bank in the country. And yet this dysfunctional pattern of order giver, order taker was absolutely running the company. So what we needed to do was to reframe the roles. So we implemented a new operating model and we reframed the role of head office from order giver to support provider. So their role became to provide support to the branches like IT support, risk support, HR support. And we reframed the role of the branches to service provider to the customer. And that reframe made an enormous difference in terms of triggering a shift in the culture. On the diagnose side of the spectrum, when leaders might start suspecting that something is wrong with the culture, how do you go about doing something about it? Is it a matter of changing people's personalities and behavior? Or is there something that's more effective about really diving in and trying to start shifting the culture? Yeah, I think, again, that's one of the tools that leaders have been given. They've been taught that change comes about by changing people's personality. And because I studied psychology, I began to realize that actually we can affect change in three ways. We can affect change through our behavior change comes about. We have an instinct to protect our family. We have an instinct that drives us to seek food and shelter. But instincts are hardwired and very difficult to change. The second way that behavior is influenced is through our personality. And obviously, you know, whether we're introverts or extroverts or more gregarious or less gregarious, these personality traits are well known and they also shape our behavior. But the third and often underutilized way of impacting and influencing change is through role. And the role that we're taking up at any point in time can shape how we behave. So a simple example that I use in my book is Sarah Connors, who's a doctor at a New York hospital. And throughout her day, Sarah is in a range of different roles. In the morning, she might be meeting with first-year medical students and she steps into the role of teacher. At lunchtime, she catches up with her boss and she steps into the role of negotiator in order to negotiate new imaging equipment for her department. 
that afternoon, a colleague wants some advice about a medical diagnosis and she steps into her role as an advisor. Later that evening, she catches up with a friend and she steps into role of listener and they talk about what's been happening with their families over a glass of wine. But in each of these interactions, Sarah is still her true authentic self, but her behavior changes according to her role. So we role reframing in order to bring about faster change with less noise, which is what we did at ANZ. We reframed the role of head office from order giver to support provider to the branches. And suddenly they saw their role very, very differently, if that makes sense. Yeah. You described how patterns really become kind of the life blood of the culture, you know, for better or worse, really. And I think like by creating patterns that, you know, somebody walks in on day one, and they recognize the patterns and kind of can live that through, then I think that probably sets up the culture to sustainably build in a positive way. I don't know if it's a matter of like diagnosing or intentionally creating patterns that our people can latch onto and start to mold into their behavior. Like, how does that all work? Yeah, well, I think it's a ripple effect. Nothing is in isolation. Every behavior create a pattern or a rule or an agreement. But I think, again, leaders have been taught to focus on the behaviors rather than the patterns. And the distinction that I make, Brandon, it's like the difference between the dancers and the dance. So the dancers are the behaviors, the individuals, but the dance is the rule or the agreements that are actually dictating how things happen in the workplace. And we often focus more on the behaviors of the individuals. So we change an individual or we say, oh, well, they're the person that's at fault, but we fail to see the pattern or the agreement. So for example, in the ANZ case, normally we'd go in and we'd say, right, there's poor customer satisfaction. The customers are complaining about the service levels. Ah, it must be the fault of the branch tellers in the branches. Let's put them on customer service training and blame them. In actual fact, that wasn't the solution at all. The solution was to reframe their roles and to change the pattern of blame and the role that head office was taking up in relation to the role that the branches were taking up. And that was the solution. So intervening at the level of the branches only would not have solved for the poor customer service, if that makes sense. Let's keep honing in on this idea of reframing because there is even a very simple example that I think the listeners could get value from that I wrote down and I thought you explaining it could be great. So there's two people, Sean and Luke, and I believe one of them is a salesperson and the other might be in like customer service or something like that. They share a client together. So one has kind of the sales account management duties and the other is like customer service. And one of them end up taking the client out for lunch or something to that effect. And I think it just kind of broke the relationship a little bit. And it made it more of competition versus one of collaboration. So maybe use that as an example of like how we should be reframing. So that way we can set our, our culture up for collaboration rather than you know us against them sort of thing. Yeah. So in a software company... There was Sean, who was the relationship manager for a company called Gas Networks. So Sean is the relationship manager and Luke is the sales manager. And they're pulling together a proposal to try and get new work from this client, Gas Networks. And Luke, as the sales manager, is taking the client from Gas Networks out to lunch. 
And Sean hears about this and he's really annoyed. And he goes in to see Luke and he says, what's going on? You're going to lunch and I'm not invited and I'm the relationship manager for the client. And Luke said, well, we don't really need you at this stage. I'll bring you in when I need you. And it goes on and on. And essentially, it gets worse. Their relationship starts to break down. And what they're in is a competitive pattern. So they're both in this pattern of I on the client, it's my deal. And the other one's going, I on the client, it's my deal. And they're both in role of competitors competing for the same client. So how do you break that pattern? Well, unless one of them steps into role of collaborator, rather than competitor, that pattern will continue and it will get more toxic. So one day, Sean decides to do that. He goes, right, he knocks on Luke's office door, comes in and he says, what do you need? You know, you're writing this proposal. What do you need from me? How can I help you? So rather than competitor, he decides to become a collaborator. And he says, actually, we are struggling a little bit with data on what their needs are, what are some of their issues. And we're trying to develop out that section of the proposal. And Sean says, well, I've got that from a previous meeting. I know exactly what some of their issues are and I can help you bring that into the proposal. And then Luke said, well, that's really good. Maybe together we can create a better proposal and we're more likely to land this client deal. So they've shifted their role. One of them had to break the pattern. And Sean decided to break the pattern by stepping out of role of competitor with Luke into role of collaborator with Luke, if that makes sense. It does because you see that the diagnose happens, they reframe the role and they broke the pattern right there. But it does take somebody to to acknowledge that there's an issue here. And it took one of them to be kind of the bigger person and step up, right? Exactly. I think Sean had to see the pattern and he saw that they were caught and they were stuck and also how he was co-creating the pattern because passions never exist in isolation. You can't point to one person or one root cause in culture change. They are always co-created. So he saw that. He saw his role in co-creating the pattern. And you get these all the time. You can even get them at home where you see parents. You know, you have, um, I talk about Sarah and Mark who are a married couple and they've got twins and they keep complaining that the twins drop their clothes on the bathroom floor and in the bedroom and they won't pick up the clothes. So the kids are in role of clothes droppers. and But when you look at the situation, Sarah and Mark are actually the clothes picker-uppers. So they keep picking up the clothes after the kids drop the clothes and their toys. So you have a perfect agreement that mum and dad will pick up after us. That is the agreement. Nothing will change until you break that pattern or agreement, until you stop taking up the role of clothes picker-uppers if there is such a word, but I've made up that word. And then the pattern will shift once the parents step out of their roles. The parents are co-creating this pattern and you've got to see it and change your role in order to change the pattern. I feel like you just came up with that example just to call me out for picking up my kids' (laughs) clothes. (laughs) I think all parents could use that. (laughs) Too funny. You know, those individual examples of like the Sean and Luke example is great because... Two people took it upon themselves to make change, right? But I'm looking like holistically, if you're like a business leader who's like, there's something wrong with the culture, how do we go about measuring it or establishing a baseline so we know that we're improving it? Because I firmly believe, and I think you even wrote it in the book, that it's hard to change what you really can't measure. So with culture, how do you measure it in the first place? How do you establish some sort of baseline metric, whether it's happiness or engagement or anything like that? 
Yeah. And I think it's, you know, you can't measure the patterns, but what you can measure is the progress you're making on the journey. So one of the things, for example, that we were clear about in ANZ over the course of seven years was that we wanted to create a very different bank and a very different culture. And that culture was more than just engagement. So we were measuring engagement, but we wanted to measure things like customer satisfaction. We wanted to create a highly customer-centric culture. We also wanted a culture that was good financially and was paying dividends to our shareholders. So we tracked our metrics. We tracked how we were going on profit, on margin, on cost reduction. So we had a suite of metrics that were more than just about employee engagement. We were also looking at sustainability as a measure and became the number one bank on the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. So there were a suite of measures that related to multiple stakeholders, not just employees. And we tracked those over the course of seven years to see our progress on the journey. Do you like stay or exit interviews as a way of gathering qualitative data? I don't know if you can do anything that's metric oriented, but at least for qualitative to see if there's any themes. Yeah, you can use exit interviews definitely to start picking up data. One of the things I talk about in my book is multiple perspectives. So often as a manager, you can see things from your perspective, but what you've got to pick up is what other parts of your organization are thinking and feeling and particularly your external stakeholders. So you can have one view from internally, but how does it look externally? I I talk about it's a bit like being the captain of a ship, that you can't spend all of your time on deck. You've actually to get up on the bridge. And on the bridge, you can see that there are storms on the horizon. There are dark clouds emerging. There might also be opportunities. There might be land ahead where there are better opportunities. And you've got to toggle between the deck and the bridge. You said that employees tend to look for signals from their leaders about what's important and about how they should behave. So what are some examples of how employees look for those signals or maybe examples of what are the signals in general? Yeah, so many signals, symbols that leaders can use in order to trigger a change. And I think... Those can be as simple as one of the things John McFarlane did at ANZ was rather than everybody waiting to be told what to do, one of the values was lead and inspire each other. And what he says to the 32 people in the bank was that you've got to stop looking to others for leadership. You've got to lead and inspire each other. And I've seen many leaders do that, use symbols very powerfully in order to trigger a change and to say, this is a new beginning and the old ways are no longer going to be the same as they were. And even I worked at an infrastructure company where there was a lack of accountability in the culture, leading to very poor margins and lots of contracts losing money. And the CEO at the time was very frustrated because he had a marketing manager who hadn't installed a billboard on the top of the company building that would be an advertising hoarding and it would indicate that the company had a presence locally. And three months after he made the request of his head of marketing, the billboard hadn't yet appeared. But what turned out was that the CEO had had conversations with many people about this delay, but he hadn't actually had a conversation head of marketing because the pattern in the culture of we don't give bad news to each other, we don't have the real conversations because we want to be liked more than we want to perform. So the CEO had to step out of role of Mr. Nice Guy and into role of 
performance manager. And once he realized that, he started to have the conversations. So he didn't have to have a big symbol about it. He just had to shift his role and change his behavior from Mr. Nice Guy to performance manager. And that started a whole change in the culture. And people noticed, oh, he's holding us to account. He's having the performance conversations with us. On a similar note, there's something that I thought was very interesting. You kind of talked about like the attitude of do whatever it takes to please the boss and how this is kind of like a culture killer in a way. Why is that? Yeah, well, that emerged. One of the stories in the book is about Toshiba, which is a Japanese company started by a guy called Tanaka Hisasaki. And it was a very innovative culture to begin with. The founder, Tanaka, had made looms and clocks and dolls and even steam locomotives. He was a very innovative founder. But the reverence for him as a founder started to become a dysfunctional pattern, which was please the boss at all costs. So the reverence for their innovative founder became this yes man fear of being bad news to the boss culture. And 2015, that sort of culminated in a scandal where the computer business overstated its profits in Toshiba to the tune of $1.5 billion. So you can see how a pattern can emerge and can become dysfunctional over time. And this sort of reverence morphed into a pleasing the boss at all cost pattern that cost the company an enormous amount in terms of this 2015 scandal. It does seem like by pleasing the boss, you you get in sort of this like, this is the way we've always done it, or it stifles innovation and creativity. I think Nokia had the same kind of deal too, where they're like most innovative on mobile phones. And then all of a sudden, Apple comes around and just wipes them out, you know, face the earth, basically. And I don't know what happened there, but I imagine it was probably something similar. Yeah. I mean, Nokia is another great example. They actually had the technology to compete with Apple. So they had the technology, the smartphone technology before Apple did. So the downfall of Nokia, which was the poster child for innovation back in the 90s, and then by 2013, it had been, you know, it was a shadow of its former self and had by Microsoft. But essentially, you know, which goes to my earlier point, the underlying issue at Nokia was not a failing of technology. It was a failing of culture. And a pattern had emerged in Nokia where the hardware engineers saw themselves as superior to the software engineers. So it was like, we're top dogs, we're better than you. Where in Apple was that the software engineers and the hardware engineers were working together to create smartphones that wowed the customers with apps, basically, which were revolutionary. So this underlying issue with the culture, they had a lack of diversity, they had a lack of innovation, they had complacency, and they had this issue of the software engineers being seen as lesser than the hardware engineers. Those four cultural issues combined led to their ultimate downfall. So pulling the thread a little bit further, you wrote that it's far better to create an environment that gives people freedom to solve problems. Describe how that could look and why that's more effective in terms of like building a collaborative work environment. Well, one of the reframes that you can do is to make everybody a problem solver within the company. If Sally and Tim are running the widget machine, who's best placed to solve the issue of waste on that widget machine. It's not their manager or that person's. Yeah, Yeah, they're too far disconnected. Yeah, it's the two people who are running the widget machine. You know, give them the role of problem solver. 
to eliminate waste and they will surprise you with their solutions. So this whole thing of rather than just framing their role as the operators, if you reframe the role as the problem solvers, you can get a very different outcome with uh, quite fast and with minimal noise, the whole technique of reframing, which I describe in the book. A couple more things I want to touch on and then I'll let you go because we're running out of time. How do you keep old patterns from re-emerging once the culture has got to the place where you're feeling really good about it, but those things can come back and you don't want those things to come back. So how do we keep them from ever servicing again? Yeah, I think this is where, you know, as a manager, you're on the bridge. You're not just on the deck. You're noticing, you're getting feedback, you're seeing where the old patterns might be re-emerging and you're intervening in a way that helps people to keep going on their journey to the new ways. So it's not a simple formula. You have to be vigilant because they're very deeply wired often, these old patterns, and they can easily reemerge. So as a leader, you have to keep your eyes and ears open and learn how to intervene in a way that breaks the patterns and continues to create new ones that you want to see. I think that's interesting you said about the intervening part because earlier you were talking about how the nice guy culture, like just no confrontation. And you wrote at some point later on in the book about like having a culture where your team feels like family members rather than like coworkers. And is, you know, is that a good thing or not? Like I think with family members, conflict, they don't want to take issues head on and deal with them because most people just want to play nice or whatever. But is that a good thing overall? Like where it feels like family? Having a family culture usually emerges from a founder that starts a family business and it grows from there. That can be problematic because the role of a family member is very different to the role of an employee. As a family member, you can never leave the family. As an employee, you've got a contract and you can leave that contract and you can join another company. I've seen quite a few issues where The role of employee has been framed as part of the family. And in some of those organizations, the person, when they weren't performing, for example, they kept on being passed from one department to the next rather than dealing with the issue. The person was just passed from one place to the next and the underperformance kept on happening. So it can be tricky having the framing of people as family members because companies are not families. So yes, I have seen a number of issues with that framing in organizations. So I want to end with this, and I think it's relevant to the times right now. So I'm curious how the workspace plays a role in shaping the culture. And most notably right now, we were talking before we started recording, both you and I are working at home quite a bit as as many people who are Mm. knowledge workers. And I'm curious, like in a time like this, where people are working distributed, like from home or whatever, like how do you continue to shape the culture the way you want when the workspace might not be in an ideal situation? One of the things I'm talking to managers about is the intentionality. So you can create the culture that you want with intentionality. You can leave space for the development of the relationship as well as the task. One of the big things is that we, in a virtual world, not to just focus on the task and the instruction, but to also make time for the relational component. So you deliberately ask people, how was your weekend? Let's go around the virtual room and hear from everybody about what was the highlight, even if it was just making dinner or going for a walk, you know, 
were a bit restricted. But what was your highlight? And we have a laugh about that, that our highlight might have been uh, cooking a roast. That was how exciting it got. But that creates that bond. So be intentional about the culture that you want. And the culture that's needed now, and this is what I talk about in my book, is often a culture that can adapt in disruptive times. And this is why I've really wanted to give people the four steps to create a culture that can adapt because it's needed now more than ever. So the adaptive organizations are going to be the ones that survive and thrive in uncertain times. And those are the times we're in today. Well said, Siobhan. I appreciate you coming on. We literally only touched the tip of the iceberg on your book. There's so much more there. So I encourage people to go pick it up. Where can people learn more about you or pick up your book or anything like that? Yeah, the book is called The Insider's Guide to Culture Change by Siobhan McHale, and it's available on Amazon. And the other way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. So you can follow me on LinkedIn, and I do post regularly about workplace culture and how you can create a culture that can deliver, grow, and adapt. Siobhan, it was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. You're very welcome. 